with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. What you see is what you get. According to the weather forecast, we are supposed to be mainly sun and cloud for the better part of today. It's a Tuesday morning. I want to wish her in the host chair. Had a good show lined up. Our first guest is on the line and ready to go to it. Uh, got uh, Councillor Garth Frizzell on the phone. Good morning, Garth. Good morning. How are you, Alan? Not too bad. And yourself, sir? Oh, it's a good day today. Good day today. Despite all the deluge of rain that's been coming down over the last week. It's been ridiculous. I mean, yeah, today isn't supposed to be that bad a day. And again, we can't complain about the temperature too much, at least. Yeah, and you know what? It beats forest fires any day of the week. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, council been fairly busy. And it, well, let's start, let's just start actually start with council meetings. They've, there's been quite a change to council meetings over the past few months. Oh, really frustrating. Uh, uh, much much nicer when you've got uh, a full open chambers when the the public is there, when the media is able to participate, when you, when you're going to have a, a full uh, engaged session. That's a big piece that's missing from the current system, and uh, yeah, we really miss it. And now, are most of are most of the councillors able to make it, or are a fair number of you guys doing it uh, remotely as well? Uh, no, actually, you know, the uptake on remote has been really small on our council. We've had that capacity about, oh, seven or eight years now, and we don't use it very often. Uh, since we've got the distancing set up so that we are, we, we can get into chambers and be far enough apart, almost everybody always shows up. So it, it hasn't been that big a difference among the actual council members. Okay. But the piece with the public, though, having all those seats taped off and having it closed off, it just... You know, there's something wrong about it. We have to deal with it, but it, it, it's not appealing. Don't enjoy it at all. And just to sort of complete the picture for people who maybe have not been following council um, online, um, staff members, are most of them able to come into the chambers as well, or are a fair number of them doing their stuff from home? Uh, no, no. Uh, when we need the staff members to address a particular point, they do come in. But they sit in the seats where the audience normally would be, where, where the citizenry is typically. So very spaced out, and when they speak, uh, come from a variety of different microphones that are placed <laughs> far apart around the room. So we're all maintaining our distance. Luckily, we've got a, a sizable council chamber. So the, uh, definitely not the same, Alan. Definitely not, not likable. It's a worst possible option except every other one, I guess. Yeah. And I believe I saw a story yesterday where I think it was the ombudsman had ruled that actually um, the acts that were passed to allow council to basically do private meetings actually overstepped the bounds of what they of what cabinet could do. Yeah. So we're uh, we're having some changes. We were just talking about this yesterday, and we're we're going to come. Back, we're getting uh, the new regulations brought back to us. So yeah, you're hitting the ground running. This is this. <laughs> brand new just out so we're figuring out what we can do because if we can let more people in fantastic that'll be excellent that's what we all want because I, I seem to recall last week i think there was a public hearing i wanted to say it was on a proposed cannabis store and there had been a fair bit of uh response from the public by email and stuff and i think it was you expressed some frustration at these people not being able to actually address council face to face 
Yeah, that's right, Alan. We here we are with uh, eighteen to twenty different uh, submissions that had come in, and that's that's fairly large. Mm-hmm. Um, and we weren't able to see the people. Now, staff had all had arranged a uh, the second floor conference room, which is adjacent to chambers, so that it would be available. But we aren't we weren't allowed with those those revised procedures to have people in the chambers, and that's frustrating. I don't like it when we. When we do it, and it's going to be, we can't get back to the the normal fast enough. And yeah. you know what? Everybody around Chambers feels the same way. We're all pretty frustrated at not being able to, to talk to the public directly. So expect, don't expect anything to jump the gun, if you will, but expect that as soon as the word comes down that, yes, uh, council can start holding p- full public hearing meetings again, you guys will be in there. Yeah, and actually staff was really smart about the way they did it. It's triggered so that the moment the medical health officer says it's okay, our bylaw immediately skips back to what it was before. Uh-huh. That's, that's how it's been set up. It's quite smart. Uh-huh. So we don't have to wait. We don't have to pass anything. It just is automatic. That's a good idea. So now let's talk about a couple of things that council has done over the past few months. One item in particular that I noticed was a whole bunch of I think I guess they're called safety enhancements for downtown that you guys uh, put in. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, pretty positive stuff. We've uh, and we're getting some good feedback. So the first one was the washrooms that were put in in Canada Games Plaza. The big challenge we had with the vulnerable population downtown is that as soon as COVID hit, uh, the public places were unavailable for washrooms. Those were those were closed to the public to everybody, and then. Private businesses weren't available either. So where are you going to go to the washroom? <laughs> and and at that point, you really need a place to wash your hands and to stay clean. It was it was something that Northern Health and the city identified as a key need. So we made it happen. And it's a monitored site that's in Canada Games Plaza. There's the there's the privacy, and then there's the sanitizing that you can do. Plus, it's uh, it's got a a person on site who can clean and monitor the bathrooms as well. It's It's been really well received. It just last week, we got a, an email from a local business that's nearby saying that the impact of that right away was substantial. Uh, so it's helping people. Um, it's also making the downtown better just by just by having that in place. Now, it's, it's, uh, it's something that's a temporary measure. So once COVID is done, we've got to, we've got to find other solutions. But uh, at least it's it's serving an important purpose and it's making a real big impact where it is. So now that was one of the things that you guys did that uh, was very definitely related directly to COVID, but then you've also had stuff happening. You've got cleanup crews going through the alleys and stuff. Was that something that was sort of on the calendar, if you will, but when you saw the chance to do it now, you did? Oh, it's a regular thing that we have each year. Uh, and when they come out and start uh, start uh, getting active again, it's it's noticeable right away. So we're really pleased that it's that it's back in place. And again, got emails this week saying that that the uh, the cleaning is noticed. It's uh, welcome. Now, the measures that you're talking about and that I've just brought up, uh, they don't solve everything, but every little bit that you can do to to make it better, it it's noticed and uh, makes an impact. So. The big one that we're waiting for is the uh, the First Avenue facility that we're looking at uh, with the BC government, and that's going through its processes with City Council. So we'll uh, we'll look for that. It just got slowed down by COVID, 
not stopped, just slowed down. Yeah. That happened to a lot of things, didn't it? Yeah, and, and in, in particular, of course, with the economy. And uh, Alan, just while I was uh, while I was getting my call ready on this side, the new economic indicators just came out at uh, quarter to nine today mm-hmm. for the city. And as expected, the the indicators for this year, if you compare it with last year, are disastrous. Yeah. It's uh, the unemployment is way up. Uh, the employment down and a whole range of different indicators are looking bad. But if you compare Prince George with BC or with Canada this year, we're doing better. Mm-hmm. You know, 11%, uh, 11%. If we had a, a drop in Prince George of our employment rate from 70% to 55 between this year and last year, well, in BC right now, instead of being 55% employed, it's 53 across BC and 53 across Canada. So we're a couple of points better in, in the jobs here, which is good. I mean, that's that's not great. We've uh, we've seen construction go down in our region by more than 3,000 jobs, but wholesale and retail went up like almost 2,000 jobs, 1,800 new jobs wow. um, because of, uh, well, the changes that we've seen. Our building permits, the value went down, but uh, not substantially, you know. Um, we saw our building permits at 13.4 million to the end of May, and in fact, that's uh, just on the value part. If you don't look at the numbers, uh, numbers of permits that were pulled, 13.3 increase compared to May of last year. Yeah. So there's that. The big one that that's hitting us is that air passenger traffic. I mean, yeah. that's where we've been hammered. It's a 95 percent drop from last year just the bottom has fallen out of air travel as you'd expect yeah so on a positive note i'll just close on one piece and that's the real estate value so your average house price mm-hmm. three hundred and sixty-six thousand last year it's three hundred and seventy thousand this year okay. so houses are going up in value still now one other thing that you're involved with now besides council is i understand you have taken on a role with Hubspace downtown as well yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm an instructor at the college. I teach uh, economics mm-hmm. there, and for half my time this year, I got uh, seconded downtown to work with Hubspace. So it's an innovation hub, and it brings entrepreneurs uh, into, into well, we call it an ecosystem, uh, so a place where you can uh, you can learn about how to do business. You got a bright inventor who wants to move into business. Well, we'll help them help them get established, and it's it's really starting to take off. I can see. That as we come into September with the restart, uh, we've got lots of plans. The provincial government and the federal government uh, has been rolling out opportunities for people. So as we go through this big disruption in business, and as as you heard, it's a massive disruption to business, there'll be new things that happen. There will be terrible things we have to endure. I heard on a conference, and there was I was on an international conference call earlier this spring, and Mayor of Seville was saying 144 million businesses around the world could go out of business by the end of this year. It's just just immense. Yeah. Well, at the same time, there's opportunities for new new ideas, uh, new innovation. So when you get disruption, you got to grow. And and at HubSpace, we've built on the work of previous executive directors. We've got a beautiful space. There's some co-working down there, and been having some great partnerships with the existing groups 
like uh, Community Futures, Aboriginal Business Development Centre, Northern Trust, uh, the city's economic department. So it's going to be opening up as soon as possible uh, for for new entries, but we've also got uh, our existing group that's already come back and starting to, to do business. Um, really dynamic, really exciting time. The one thing I got to kick out, because I, I got the tour last week with Chris King, and it is in... For people who have been in Prince George, it's actually been a while now, but it's the old Royal Bank building there on 3rd Avenue. And yes. I, I love the fact that, if I remember correctly, the um, video conferencing area is the old vault. That's right. We literally call it the vault. So uh, Chris King down there is, is managing the community down there, and uh, Charles Scott's doing some business development. And in that vault... It's been repurposed into a podcasting studio or Zoom room. Mm -hmm. It's got a green screen on the back wall, and we've got some pretty good equipment for uh, for sound and for video. Uh, I tell you, you can be in there and with a backdrop of uh, Mr. PG or or City Council Chambers, if you want, for that matter. Wow. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Or Niagara Falls, whatever you want. It's uh, it's been a really really a starting to pick up in adoption. We had two new groups start there just in the last two weeks doing their regular podcast. So it's, um, we can see, we have to do it safely, you know. We have to do it in a sanitized way, but we're starting to see people get more active and involved, and geez, I can't wait for the restart. <laughs> the other thing I noticed when I was in there was in sort of the main ground floor foyer, if you will, that main area, it's all tables. And I took a quick very quickly, you know, I just use my arms basically, and the tables are six feet wide. They're circular. They're six feet wide. So if you are meeting somebody there, you've got the six foot distance. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that hasn't been lost on people. They're starting to to see the opportunity for for coming in and um, having their meetings at any one of those tables in that big, vast open space. <laughs> so yeah, it's. Uh, one of the benefits of having that great big open space. Yeah. Okay. Now, just about time to wrap up. I'm just going to go back to council for a second. What is kind of an issue or an item that you see coming up for council in, say, the next month that uh, you're really interested in seeing what happens with it? Uh, Alan, uh, I'm not going to make any mince any words about it. We are bleeding money still. The revenues mm -hmm. uh, that we typically get from uh, from everything from casinos to uh, people using the facilities have, have run out. We're losing a million dollars a month that we expect to have, more or less. And that's like an extra percentage on the tax rate. So after six months, that's 6% loss, right? After 12 months, a tw Vancouver has been con seriously considering a 14% tax increase wow. and we can't do that so what's the other option that's a big decrease in services mm -hmm. and uh, what we've been doing is actively talking to the federal government about relief for all the municipalities you know and in, in this one year it's cost them cost us all together across Canada 10 to 15 billion dollars and if we're gonna be actually doing this restart safely with all the proper services of the city we're going to need some support from the federal and provincial governments. And they, they've been negotiating. They've heard the call, but they're not getting it done. You know, we haven't gotten the word out, and we have to get this. This is, it, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place, between higher taxes and lower services. And that's 
exactly the wrong place to be. Either one of those options is unacceptable in in the midst of COVID, in the midst of this economic crisis. So that's, you ask for what the big issue is, and that, that's the one that's keeping me up at night. Okay. Councillor Garth Frizzell, thank you very much for taking the time today. Okay, thanks a lot, Alan. Have okay. a great day. Go to a quick break, and we'll be back with more after nine. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we are back. Our, uh, our next guest is not here yet, so I'm going to chat a little bit with Steve Smith about stuff that's happening around the city and things. A um, couple of things people may not have heard of that I just want to uh, mention. You should have heard about this one because it's been almost a month now that they've been doing it. Uh, the, the library, Prince George Public Library, and I believe both of their locations, is offering curbside holds pickup. So if you've got a book that's been on hold, they'll phone you when it's in. You come down. I guess, I don't know because I haven't done it, but um, I'm guessing they you probably phone when you get there, and then they bring the book down to you. And you're ready to go. I've never heard of it. Oh, okay. Start on May 25th. I believe they are starting to uh, get things uh, ready for the next step, actually. And I'm probably going to be talking with somebody from the library. Well, next week is sort of a strange week because I've only got one show a week from today. I don't have a Wednesday show because it's Canada Day. Which I think is a reason is a reasonable reason to not have a show, uh, but the following week I will probably have somebody from the public library on to talk about where they are in terms of what their next step is in uh, reopening. So that'll be interesting because that's a group that is moving ahead already with stuff. Um, uh, no big surprise, although it did happen. Well, it was a couple of weeks ago now. The, uh, they waited as long as they could on this one. The Saints and Sinners Tour, which was scheduled for Canada Day at uh, CN Centre with the Big Wreck, Headstones, Moist, and the Tea Party. Uh, they waited as long as they could uh, because having the four bands that you were trying to schedule and then reschedule, they wanted to hold off as long as possible, but eventually had to say, no, we're just not going to be able to do it. So... Well, with what's happening in sports now? Oh, I mean, you can't. You no. can't do it. No, we got to back up. Yeah. Well, I mean, they had that one even a um, couple of weeks ago. I wish I could think of the name of the group who were going to be doing their show from the roof at CN Center. That was a local band. Right? Yeah, yeah. Studio, Studio Seven Twenty, I think. I think that's who it was. We'll go with that. Yeah. They were going to do, and then, like, they had that scheduled for a weekend, Saturday or Sunday. On the Friday, the provincial government said, no, we're, we're actually going to sort of change the rules a little bit, and even drive-ins can only have 50 vehicles maximum. So... Um, can you just quickly run downstairs? I just heard somebody knock on the door. It might be our next guest, and I will just keep going. Uh, something else that is going on that had been rescheduled some time ago, and uh, I'll just mention it again. 
uh, Spirit Day 2020 was scheduled for the beginning of May to raise funds for Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation. It has now been rescheduled for September 17th. Uh, same idea, I believe. Uh, University Hospital of Northern BC and the uh, Jim Patterson Broadcast Group Studios there on uh, 3rd Avenue is where they will be doing the uh, broadcast from. And uh, so um, is that our guest? That would be your guest. Okay. A little bit early, but first of all, get rid of Puff the Magic Dragon. Let's get rid of Puff the Magic Dragon. Okay, and then what we will do is we will go to the next break. So start the next break and turn off our mics for the moment. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And joined now by Barry Clark, whose initials are BC, which works out perfectly because he's with the BC Honey Producers Association. (laughs) He's the local rep. And Barry... I'm guessing the bees could care less about the pandemic. That's that's correct, yes. Yeah, actually, most wildlife seem to be doing much better now. (laughs) Now, how about the beekeepers? How about the honey producers themselves with the pandemic? Like, a lot of them are probably spending more time at home. So does that give you more time to work with your bees? Uh, That's correct, yes. Speaking of pandemic, Mm. it's... uh, Nasikoff. <laughs> I've had um, it for about nine months. Don't worry. Uh, that's all right. No, I'm not. Uh, yeah. So the um, uh, one of the hats I wear is a uh, uh, an inspector with the Ministry mm-hmm. of Agriculture for bees, and uh, that was deemed an essential service. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have been busy doing inspections this spring, and I have to say that uh, most most beekeepers are. Uh, enjoying the fact that they get to spend more time with their bees because most of them aren't working right now, yeah. right? And Or I guess that's changing as we speak. But, uh, yeah, no, I think that <clears throat> the bees are doing pretty well. The managed honeybees are mm-hmm. doing pretty well. Um, uh, I don't know if you'd heard, but we usually import a lot of uh, honeybees from New Zealand and Australia, Ooh. and that didn't happen this year. Okay. So beekeepers in the province of BC had to step up and start producing their own bees t- uh, to sell to each other and uh, and whatnot. So yeah, it was uh, actually um, it turned out pretty good. Uh, uh, people got bees and um, and they're looking after them. Yeah. Now, did that did having to do that put any sort of a strain on the provincial system, if you will, so that possibly? If it wasn't that much of a strain, is something where next year you might be saying, okay, we don't have to import as many bees as we did? Well, so what happens is there's uh, a lot of colonies, honeybee colonies die over the winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that we're struggling to try and uh, resolve um, on an individual basis and mm-hmm. collectively. There's a lot of research that goes on um, at the universities around the world, and particularly here in BC and, uh, uh, and throughout the U.S., trying to... I guess find out how to keep these bees healthy. Um, <clears throat> that said, we import quite a few uh, bees every year to replace losses, and the primary group that imports those are the commercial beekeepers that supply mm-hmm. pollination services to uh, the berry crops in the Lower mm-hmm. Mainland and uh, throughout the Okanagan. That and we were concerned that we weren't going to be able to supply the numbers of bees. Um, 
this spring, but I'm hearing reports that blueberries, for instance, got the uh, the amount of uh, pollinators that they needed, and um, I, I guess it's it kind of it's a complex situation. A lot of these uh, berry farms haven't been able to get their foreign workers, and so right. they may have reduced uh, production because they they couldn't handle the the levels of production mm -hmm. they had in the past so they would need less pollination uh, so, so it's it kind of it it's, like, worked out okay it's a complex yeah. um, dance that goes on between pollinators and farmers and uh, and that sort of thing and and I was wondering at first when you said you imported a lot of the bees from New Zealand and Australia, and I was kind of going, oh, that's a long... And then it occurred to me when you started talking about how they die off over the winter, well, duh, our winter is their summer. Exactly. So their bees are just going, yes, we're getting pumped up, we're ready to go. Yes, they're just getting ready for winter when uh, when we import them. And okay. uh, But this year that didn't happen. Yeah. And uh, uh, a lot of uh, beekeepers locally here, too, have been making up uh, nukes. A nuke is a uh, miniature, it's called a nucleus hive. I know it okay. sounds, yeah. I, yeah. I had me worried it's, for a second. Yeah, there. it's not intercontinental. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. But, um, but it's a, a nucleus a hive, and essentially it's four or five frames of bees with a, a mated queen, and it's enough to get a colony started, a, a new beehive started. So there's been a lot of that going on throughout BC, and, and more so here in the Prince George area than we've seen in the past. And I think that's a result of the pandemic as, as well. Mm -hmm. So, and I should say that this, uh, starting yesterday, is National Pollinator Week. So, um, oh, yeah, so a good time considering yeah. I knew nothing about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, from the 22nd to the 28th, it's national. <laughs> yeah, pollination is, uh, it's, uh, across the U.S. and Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's lots going on, like the B.C. Legislature and the CN Tower are all uh, changing their lighting to reflect, uh, uh, you know, support for pollinators mm -hmm. and stuff like that when they light themselves up at night. <laughs> and it's quite an exciting time. Now, one thing that maybe is not quite as exciting, and I don't think it had any effect up here, but about, a, what was it, a month, month and a half ago, all of a sudden... COVID knocked off the front pages in some areas because we had murder hornets showing up. Oh, right. I, yes. I forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I mean. You haven't heard anything about that. Yeah. But, so the murder hornets, you're right. They, they actually, uh, it's an Asian, mm -hmm. um, an, a giant Asian hornet is, uh, I, I can't, uh, <laughs> Vespa mandarina, I think. is Okay. Or, or, Still. Still, they just, are, just the word giant hornet yeah. scares a lot of people. Yeah, and then, of course, they somebody in the media uh, coined the phrase murder hornets and it hit the front pages again. Mm. They actually showed up on Vancouver Island last fall Ooh. in September. Okay. Uh, there was, uh, they were spotted. They're, they're not as, um, uh, I guess, they're, they're scary to look at, mm -hmm. and they are very dangerous for bees, for honeybees. Oh. Um, oh. These... Uh, that's really murder. Uh, giant Asian hornets can decimate a hive very quickly, uh, and that's one of their primary food sources, particularly when in the fall. Mm -hmm. um, so they eat other bees. They uh, originate in Japan, and um, and in Japan, I've read that they account for fifty to seventy deaths a year. And Japan's a very densely populated yes. country, so you can see they're not quite uh, the the uh, the danger that yeah. the media has made them out to be. Um, <clears throat> but they are uh, an invasive uh, hornet that we believe has come over from on containers. Mm -hmm. um, 
how they've spread is uh, uncertain. There's been, uh, they found the nest on Vancouver Island in Nanaimo mm -hmm. and, uh, and managed to eliminate it. And I saw specimens from that that uh, nest and they are quite uh, <laughs> quite large and quite scary looking. You're sure it's dead. You're yeah. sure it's dead. <laughs> yeah. But there has been sightings now in Langley and White Rock Ooh. and in Washington State. Yeah. And unconfirmed sightings um, in the interior, I believe, in Kamloops. But mm -hmm. um, that's that hasn't been confirmed. No. And so we're on the lookout. It's uh, it's good that people are aware of them mm -hmm. and have seen know what to, to look for uh, because we do want to make sure mm -hmm. they don't get a foothold here in, in British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, our climate, not particularly here, but the climate on the island and in the lower mainland would probably be very suitable for them. That's what I was about yeah. to ask because I'm thinking up here the, long, the season that they could probably survive isn't that long it, yeah it's hard to say yeah um, <clears throat> but we don't want to find out either. no and no, let's uh, not try any yeah, experiments yeah. <laughs> so so what happens is uh, they, they're gro ground dwellers they they build oh. their nest in the ground mm -hmm. and they're not really dangerous unless you disturb the nest to get too close to the nest so sort of like your regular hornet to that extent exactly really. yeah. yeah they don't go after humans or animals oh. larger than bee they're an insect eater and they call themselves a murder hornet well Jeez. yeah <laughs> Again, that's the media that, uh, you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, it, so, yeah, that, it's, uh, we're aware of it. We're, every, we're asking beekeepers in particular to keep an eye out for them because they do, pre, uh, they're main predator of honeybees. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if they're going to show up, we'll probably see them around our beehives. Okay. Yeah. Now... We were talking there a couple of seconds ago when we were talking about murder hornets, about the climate here as compared to the island. Um, what kind of weather would you honey producers like to see for, say, the next month, month and a half in this area? Well, I have to, I have to tell you that the weather this spring, it's been cold mm -hmm. and, uh, and wet. And so that has slowed down a lot of our native bees. Um, I mean, I'm just seeing... Uh, large female bumblebees now flying around uh, well not now it's no. in the last few weeks and establishing their nests so if people have seen fewer uh, native pollinators that might be one of the the causes mm -hmm. uh, or the, mm -hmm. the reasons is that we've had a late spring um, uh, around my place I've got lots of bumblebees and uh, mason bees and other native pollinators mm -hmm. um, I've, I've got two <laughs> two, yeah. And I've seen in, uh, I was visiting a beekeeper in Myworth the other day, and uh, lots of native pollinators around there too. So it, as far as weather goes, this has been very good mm -hmm. in terms of uh, uh, nectar and, uh, and plants growing and, and proliferating. So we're right now just starting into what we call our honey flow or nectar flow mm -hmm. in this area. And bees will be building up very quickly, uh, uh, bringing in nectar and pollen, and um, if it could be, I guess if it if it rains every few days, it'll keep the farmers off the fields <laughs> in terms of cutting the hay, and that'll be good for pollinators for sure. But uh, I'm sure the farmers would like to get out there and cut their hay because the hay crops seem to be very good this year yeah. too. Yeah. Okay.
Barry Clark with the BC Honey Producers Association. Thanks very much for coming in and bringing us up to date and letting us know we probably don't have to worry too much about being murdered in our sleep by hornets. No, you don't. Uh, no, <laughs> okay. definitely not. And I'm, I'm going to leave a few, uh, uh, yeah. if I have one second here, a plug for the BC Honey Producers Association. This is our 100th anniversary. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. Okay. Um, We're if done? Can, yeah, if you can remove the song. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. With the pandemic, of course, a lot of people staying at home and some people have professions where they very much would prefer to be out and about and mingling with people. And then there are some people who might like mingling with people, but they actually are probably finding staying at home is not that bad an idea. Chris Diaz from Diaz Ex Machina is a game designer and author. And Chris, I'm thinking being forced to stay at home is probably not that bad a thing. Turn his mic on. Huh? Mic seven. Mic seven. No. Yeah. Oh, so, oh, so, sorry. Yeah, the mic wasn't on at that point. So if you oh. could just start that, if you could just start the answer again, please. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah, not much has changed, unfortunately. The only thing that really changed was that my fiance, uh, she she worked at home now, so she was working behind me at her desk. But uh, yeah, not much really changed. I still go for. I still walk. But yeah, it was it was kind of funny that this would happen around the same time where I'm working at home now. So, wow. yeah. So for you, you didn't really notice that much of a difference then. Having all of a sudden you're being told you have to stay at home and work, and you're kind of going, "Well, I stay at home and work anyways." Well, from the creation aspect, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, from the from the revenue aspect, things mm -hmm. changed because my uh, distributors in in the U.S. closed down. Oh. So, uh, and the game stores were closing down, so they wouldn't sell the books. So, as a result, there was a, there was a, a a marked decrease in in the revenue. But from the creation aspect, I was still able to work from home, mm -hmm. so which was very very useful. So now, where were you in the creation process? Because I know you're a game designer and an author, I believe. Do you usually work on books and games at the same time? In, in a way, yes, because uh, at least with Amethyst, the novels and the games are interrelated. Generally, I will use one to feed the other. I usually don't do them simultaneously. Um, I, I need a certain kind of mental state to write a novel and, and a different state. So I literally have to kind of change gears. I have to kind of decompile one mental state and then reload another one. And then I stay that way for, for about a month. So I've been on, I've been on game design. Uh, for the last couple of months, because my Kickstarter is finally wrapping up uh, this month. Wow. So now, the game that you're working on right now, the game you're designing, is it a continuation of one of the games you've already got going, or are you going in a new direction? Well, right now, I'm uh, I'm finishing up the last uh, Kickstarter stretch goal, which is an original setting called Affinity, uh, which deals with three different universes that are related. After that, I, I'm, I'm either going to be designing a board game that's locally... Uh, like locally themed, mm -hmm. or I'm going to be um, working on another book for Amethyst. Wow. So you're going from far-ranging, maybe not space opera, but that's sort of the theme, I think, to some extent, and now you're saying the next thing you're going to be doing is you walk down 3rd Avenue. Yeah. Yeah, so is, is that sort of what you're sort of looking at doing, is going from the this big universal, if you will, game to a game where people are going to be 
in Prince George. Well, not 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 local to that. Oh, okay. Not that close okay. to local, but definitely like BC, Central BC, mm-hmm. uh, around that. Because um, yeah, I, I, I've had this uh, kind of an epiphany, and uh, I, I a, I'm an, I'm an Advent board game collector now. Uh, I have a good 200 plus board games, me and my fiance. And so uh, it's something that we've, we've been thinking about, and we've been thinking about trying to figure out an original idea. And then we thought of something that was that was centered around a BC and BC culture, um, without uh, without feeling localized or confined to just people in BC. So it's hopefully something that everyone around the world will enjoy, uh, but will uh, kind of shine a light on 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 BC and what it, what it feels like to be living in BC. Okay, so now. Do you have any sort of a timeline in mind at this point for when you would like to wrap up the design of the game you're working on now? Well, right now, like I said, I'm about uh, a month away from finishing up the final bits of the Kickstarter, and I'm doing this kind of on the side. Right now, we're looking at uh, what type of product placement from businesses we're trying to get a hold of. And I'm working with somebody locally who's going to try to accrue some some initial funding to help get the project going, uh, help uh, pay for the uh, box design and for the multitude of art assets that we'll, that we'll require. So I'm hoping um, that we'll find an artist that can help us. So now, with the game designing, I'm thinking when you're writing the book, you're basically writing it by yourself anyway, so that's not that big a deal. But with game designing, when you've done previous games, have you interacted a lot with other people as you're going through the process? Well, when I initially wrote Amethyst back in 2007, I had a, I had a staff of about five people. But waning interest and, and conflicts of opinion eventually whittled it down to, to basically just me. Um, so I, I'm still the primary writer. I do employ an editor who's out of Ed, who's out of Edmonton. Um, I have another guy who puts my uh, covers together, and of course I've been working with the same artist since since 2007, Nick Greenwood, who's in North Carolina, and uh, him and I have a very very good working relationship. And he he sometimes contributes ideas in his illustrations that will feed my imagination. Uh, but he's he, but his, that's definitely a collaborative effort. But when it comes to the fluff, the writing, and the crunch, uh, that's 100 percent me now nowadays so now you're in isolation i'm guessing you get the game sort of designed now these are role-playing games correct well like i said yeah the, 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 the last kickstarter and the next amethyst is going to be a role-playing game mm-hmm. and then the the new local the one that's themed around a bc that's a tabletop board game okay so now when you're getting close to getting the role-playing game finished, do you normally send it out for people to play test just so they just so you can get a feel for how people seem to feel the different characters and everything work together? Yeah, and thankfully, in the new age, uh, by the time this, you know, it's it, it kind of a it's a weird commingling of, of of events because the coronavirus hit, but around that same time. Online gaming via Discord and other virtual tabletops mm-hmm. like Roll Twenty and Fantasy Grounds. Mm-hmm. So that means people around the whole world can play uh, tabletop role-playing games without leaving their home. And so I have friends that are in three or four different virtual games every single week. <laughs> so now I have people that can play and test my games 
all over the world without anyone ever having to see or touch each other. Okay. Chris, we got to go to a quick break. When you come back, we're going to talk some more about uh, games and books with Chris Diaz after nine. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, and we are back talking with uh, Chris Diaz from Diaz Ex Machina. And Chris, we were talking before the break about how your game testers, if you will, can be around the world. So how do, how do you go about doing that? Do you sort of send out an email or something to these people saying, okay, we're going to start having a game on this date at this time pacific time yeah basically it it you you get you, using this uh, uh this system called discord where people can chat with each other they can talk via voice and organize the date and then when the time comes like for me I, i'm in a virtual game now on wednesdays so at wednesday at six o'clock we go in discord make sure everyone's on board we then go to in this case world 20 which is a, one of the many virtual tabletops my game is on fantasy grounds well, uh, this one's on Roll20. You go to Roll20, you sign up, and your character, all the maps, everything's there. The whole system is built to be internal, so you don't have to do anything physically. Everything is on the screen, so everything is tracked. Uh, so it, it, it's actually astoundingly fortuitous that, that this virus broke at a time where nerds like me can stay inside without ever having to go out. And I guess the other nice thing about having the whole thing sort of internally controlled, as you were just saying, is... There's no questions about, well, I'm rolling the dice. How does anybody know for sure what I rolled? I'm guessing the machine does that. Yeah, so now everything, the, the character, the dice, the math, everything is done within the Roll20 um, program. So everything is public. So it's impossible to cheat. Unless the GM, the, GM, the, the guy who runs the game can still cheat. He mm. can still roll his dice privately, but everyone's mm. dice is rolled publicly. So it definitely, it, it completely removes... Um, that type of interpretive ruling where, where people can, can fudge with the rules. Yeah. But, uh, and I'm not going to name names or anything, but I know that there are some GMs who, even when they're playing the game face-to-face with a group, sometimes will fudge the dice rolls because maybe the group is doing everything correct and just a die roll, and it looks like they're all going to die, and the GM will maybe say, okay, well, that huge rock comes down, just misses you. Oh, oh, that's not every. That's not naming names. That's every GM. Every GM. Every every dungeon master, games master who's ever run a game, has always fudged with the rules. Remember, the GM does not cheat because no. the GM runs the game. So yeah, that, that's how the system works. So if anyone says the uh, the DM should never cheat, no, every every single one cheats. Wow. But that's that, that's the prerogative. That that's the perk of being one is that you don't you get to ignore the rules. So now you're in. A few different virtual games yourself, and in the near future, you're going to have your own game going up for people to test. Do you sometimes, especially when you're in that process where you're playing games and you've got your game out there, do you sometimes get the rules a little bit mixed up? Well, um, I mean, I I know my rules quite well. Uh, And like I said, uh, Fantasy Grounds already has uh, my previous Ultramata, the new one that was Kickstarter last year. That should should be going up quite soon, uh, but I've never had a, a real problem. But that being said, I, the only virtual games that I do are not my setting. Uh, most of these are other people that are running their own settings. But I do have people that do run with my game. Uh, but I'm not I'm not in their sessions. I mean, it, I have not run a game yet. I've been thinking about it, running a game using my setting. 
using one of these virtual systems, but I just haven't had the energy and the time to do it yet. Have you ever been tempted now that some of your games are up and on the system to go in as a player, not as the GM, but as a player? Um, not really. It, 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 would, be, it would be an interesting exper experiment, yeah. but um, it, it's interesting the fact that, that I rarely play with my own rules. I let other people play with my rules because as a game designer, I've also been games master. In fact, throughout my entire life of, of, of gaming, I've always run games. I've, I've rarely ever played them. So my entire perspective is from the creation standpoint. So I have to get the feedback from my players about what works and what doesn't. And from, what, from the games you've done in the past, do you have some players where you know, okay, I can trust his feedback 100% with somebody else? Maybe it's, okay, the dice weren't working for him that game, so i got to sort of take that into account when he talks about how lousy the game is? Well, um, yeah, no, I, there's, there's some people, like I have a couple of friends that I don't send product to because they, they can't be really analytical. My editor I hired because he was very analytical, and I, and I definitely do respond to any criticism and feedback I get either on the forums or on the, on the other sites. But, um, and usually when a book comes out, there's about a month or two where I'm constantly sending push updates to update the rules. And uh, so I was doing that with Ultramodern for a good two months before it finally the comments whittled down because you can have 30, 40 people playing your game and it doesn't beat whenever 900 people play your game and then everything changes. Mm -hmm. you, and you start seeing a lot more kinks in your armor that you wouldn't have seen before with just 20 or 30 people playing. Yeah. Are a lot of those what I think um, Magic the Gathering, because I follow them a fair bit online, they call them corner cases, the cases where you didn't really think this was going to happen, but it does. Well, with Magic, Magic's very, very unique in the fact that it has to be a perfectly balanced system. Mm -hmm. And even then, considering the thousands of cards they put out, mm -hmm. they, it is extremely easy to create unbeatable combinations, which is the reason why the company is constantly kicking cards out as they put out new supplements. I mean, there's, there are cards that are incredibly broken, and you, know, you wonder what prompted them to do it. <laughs> With role-playing games, it's slightly different because role-playing games, by their very essence, are actually somewhat badly made. They're designed to be a little unbalanced. They're designed to be not 100%. They're designed to have a lot of gray and a lot of interpretation. So it's, it's, it's the, the demand to make a role-playing game completely balanced, it's actually kind of a tall order, and most games don't follow through with it. But a tabletop board game, you know, like, a, like all these board games you see on the market, it's, a, it's vitally important that there's no way to, to break the system. They have to be perfect out of the box. So the, so the demands are much higher. And I guess the other thing with the role-playing games especially is a lot of them are team games. You're not just taking on the GM one-on-one. -on -one. You're a part of a group of people, so each of you can have your own specialties. Well, that was the thing. When I was designed, that, it's, it's, it's really important whenever you gather a group that you get a, a group of, of, of conflicting talents and also a, a synergy of players. And uh, that's why I generally have sometimes issues playing with strangers is because you don't really know what they're going to be contributing, if at all, to a group. And it's important to have a, a really good group dynamic in, in any situation. It's important for uh, either playing a role-playing game or a tabletop board game or any sort of type of social event. I mean, you know, it's strangers, and unfamiliar and unpredictability can sometimes cause chaos, so... Sometimes it's easier to go in with, with your friends. 
when you're playing, let's say, a fantasy role-playing game, I, I shall we say a standard fantasy role-playing game, what type of character do you usually like to play? Are you a warrior, or are you a druid, or are you a magic user? I'm 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 a I'm a meat and potatoes vanilla very much player. I I almost always play as an analog of myself. So generally a pasty white guy. Um, <laughs> so I'm generally like the game I'm in right now. I'm a ranger, which is completely against my type because I don't like camping. So um so I play a ranger, but very sometimes I'll play a fighter. Um, a fighter or, or or a ranger has generally been my preference. Um, I I generally very rarely play wizards. Or other people like that. I generally like being that frontline fighter. Mm -hmm. Let the other people worry about supporting you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, I'll stand in front. I'll wave. I'll wave the swords around, and then other people can uh, stand back and and so forth. And it's fun. It's, it's visceral, and it, and it's in, and, and whenever whenever I create the classes from my book, I want to create that same type of visceral. But it's ultra modern. I want to make sure everyone can feel awesome and not feel like a support character. So that was that was a challenge when designing that game. So, Chris, where can people get more information about your games and your books? Well, I have my own website at dsxmachina.com. Uh, you can find um, my <clears throat> my books everywhere online because Amazon has it, DriveThruRPG has it. And, of course, once the game stores open up, hopefully you'll be able to find my books on the shelf. Okay. Chris Diaz, Diaz X Machina, game developer and author, currently in self-isolation and not really worried too much about it. Thank you very much for taking the time today. Thank you, man. Okay. That'll do it for today's show. And we, I will be back on here uh, Wednesday after 9.